Well, several years ago, I was at a coffee shop working on a sermon. And anytime I really get into working on a message, I, I tend to just let my phone just go to voicemail. I, I, I kind of get into a groove, and so I just, I, I just don't like being interrupted. But my phone started ringing, and I, I looked down at it, and it's my wife. Uh, okay, of course, I'm going to answer the phone for my wife. And so I, I answer it. Hey, hello, beautiful. And she's got one simple request for me. That is to go and pick up my daughter, Karis, at 4.30. Uh, of course, I can pick up my daughter at 4.30. And so about 4.15, I pack everything up. I hop in the car, and I drive to the building where she's at. And Karis comes walking out. Except she walks out with a friend. And as they come up to the car, Karis says, Hey, Dad, can we give Betty a ride home? Uh, of course, we can give Betty a ride home. And so Karis and Betty get into the car, and I've never met Betty before. And, and so I just naturally want to know who one of my daughter's friends are. So I just start asking her questions. But it didn't take very long to start realizing that, that Betty was just a little different. Uh, Betty talked at a volume that was just almost inappropriate for inside of a car. Every word that she said just had this kind of nervousness with it. And you, you almost got this sense like she's giving herself inner dialogue, like coaching herself. Okay, don't say your words too fast. Uh, don't, don't say them, you know, too loud. Don't do this. But like every other word, she was denying her inner coach. And so when we finally pulled up in front of Betty's house and, and she starts to get out, she nervously giggled a thank you to Karis for hanging out for the hour. You could just tell she felt honored that someone wanted to like hang out with her at a coffee shop. And she ends up bounding inside. And I'm thinking to myself, my daughter's friend, her elevator doesn't quite go all the way to the top. Now, I didn't say that out loud. I knew better than to insult my daughter's friends. And so I wanted to know a little bit more about her. And so I started asking Karis a few questions. And I started saying, so what What'd you guys do? Karis like, oh, we just hung out, talked. I'm thinking, wow, based on that little conversation there, how did you talk for an hour? Like, what did you guys talk about? And Kara says, mm, we pretty much talked about her cats. For an hour, they did nothing but look at photos on Betty's phone of her cats. I forget how many she had. I don't care if she had 50 cats. How do you do an hour of looking at cats? And you've got to understand, my daughter Karis has never owned a cat. She doesn't own one now. I don't think she even dreams of owning a cat someday. She, I don't think she really cares about cats. And yet she gave an hour of her life to Betty and talked about cats. How in the world? Like, like for me, if you pick a subject that I'm passionate about, like if you started talking about church planting or graphic design or swimming or baseball or theology, you know, I could probably talk with you all night long. But you start talking to me about, like, seed germination or, or, or you know, plumbing or, or maybe the consistency of squirrel droppings. Like, I don't care. Like, that would bore me. I, I, I probably barely could go five minutes on those subjects. How Karis could go for an hour on cats is beyond me. This is why Karis is one of my heroes. Yeah, she's my kid, but wow. 
Have you ever been in the situation, maybe it was like a work function or, you, you know, you went to the family reunion, and you end up in a conversation, and you're wondering, how in the world did we get here? Like, you have no passion at all, and, and the more the other person talks, you almost feel like some sort of conversational jail is being built around you, and you are the prisoner, and the more they talk, the jail cell just gets smaller and smaller, and you're looking for some way out, and then an interruption comes. Something happens, and you grab that moment like the warden's keys. You unlock it, and you are out of there. Any, anyone, or am I alone in this? Okay, thank you. My, my wife, Leanne, will readily admit that this happens to her quite frequently with our boys. My two boys, 13 and 10, are passionate about we, Pokemon, and sports. I mean, there's a few other things in there, Star Wars, Legos, but that, that's primarily the main things they like talking about. Pokemon, we, and sports. My wife cares about Pokemon Wii and sports about as much as the toddler cares about quantum physics. Right? It does everything in her to stay in tune with her boys because she loves them, and yet, oh, she doesn't care about these subjects. How does Leanne do it? How did Karis do it? How do you do it? The key is humility. Humility is putting the needs and preferences of someone else before your own. It's looking at what is it that they need. Where are they at? And so you set aside your own desires for them. That's why you could have a conversation for an hour about cats. Because in that moment, it isn't about you. It's about them. But I'm going to admit, humility is hard. Now, I realize some of you, you have the personalities where there are moments where humility is actually no big deal. Like, like you're the type of person where, you know, where do you want to go for dinner? You don't care. You'll gladly let someone else have preference. Or what movie you want to watch? It really doesn't matter. And so it's easy in those moments to be humble, to put the needs of someone else before your own. But if you're a raving sports fan and your team is in the playoffs, it is nearly impossible to turn off the TV so that your kids can watch Barney reruns. It's not happening. Or or if you love shopping, if your kid gets sick on Thanksgiving, it's like the end of the world because you're going to miss out on the Black Friday sales. Like, in those moments, you realize just how difficult humility is. And yet, if you claim to follow Jesus, humility is a requirement. Even if you don't follow Jesus, if you're the type of person who really wants to make a difference in the world, it's going to require Humility. Today, we're going to go into the scriptures, and we're going to look at two people, both who exhibit humility. One of them is going to exhibit humility willingly, and we're going to discover it kind of comes from a place of love. The other person, though, they're going to exhibit humility, but only because it's about the last thing that they have. What we're going to see is that God even honors reluctant humility. And I hope today you will be walking out of here today wanting to, not reluctantly, exhibit humility because of what it could do in the world. So Father, I just pray right now that as we come into the scriptures, you would be our teacher. Open up uh, our hearts and our minds to what you want to say. Not what I've prepared to say, but what your Holy Spirit needs to say for each and every person that's here. Because I realize that every single person here is at a different place in their spiritual journey. And I pray that you would move this beyond just one man's words to what you need to say to each and every person that's here. So, Lord, I just pray that right now that you would accomplish your will in each life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
All right, so if you have a Bible with you, open it up to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, even if you have a, a Bible on your smartphone, go ahead and open it up. If you do not have a Bible, every Sunday we have some copies back on the table. Totally feel free and pick one of those up. If you do not own a Bible, totally feel free to take one of those. We've got two different translations back there. We'll find the translation that will fit you, that will help you begin to f- discover who Jesus is and how to follow him. And if you don't have a, a Bible on your smartphone, download one. We recommend the uh, Version Bible app because it's got multiple translations on it. You can kind of compare and contrast and, and just help you discover and learn. And that way you always have a Bible with you because if you're like me, you're addicted to your phone. Uh, so get a Bible on there. All right, as you turn into 2 Kings chapter 5, let's just set the, the context, the stage for this. The nation of Israel at this time isn't one nation anymore. They've actually been split into two. There's a northern kingdom known as Israel and a southern kingdom known as Judah. Now, they both have kings. The kings of Judah, some of them would follow God and some would not. But they did a lot better job than the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel were just outright rebellious. I mean, some of them actually introduced worship of other gods into it. Some of the kings became a king because they murdered the previous king. I mean, it was a mess. Now, when God established the nation of Israel, he told them, That as long as they would follow him and worship him, adhere to his statutes, he would give them peace. He would give them long life. He would give them a great harvest. But if they didn't, if they rebelled against him, if they began to worship other gods, then he would allow them to not have good harvests, to not experience peace. Like they would lose in battle. And even if those things didn't work in bringing them back to helping them to repent, he would actually allow them to go off into exile. When we come to 2 Kings chapter 5, Israel and Judah are not doing well. Israel particularly. They're not in exile yet. They're going to in several years after this. But they're beginning to lose in battle. And we're going to meet one of the guys who actually defeated them. And his name is Naaman. 2 Kings 5, start in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, And in high favor, because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. It's interesting, throughout this entire His Story series, where we've been looking at how the entire Bible points to Jesus, we've been looking at a lot of biblical characters. And we've been seeing how God works through their story and their lives point to to Jesus. But almost all of them have been Jews, or at least men and women that God used to help create the Jewish nation. But today, we're going to look at someone who wasn't Jewish. He's Syrian. He's actually an enemy of Israel. He's a mighty man. He would be the equivalent of a five-star general. He could walk in and command the presence of the king. I mean, he was really held in high favor. And did you notice that when he would go out to battle, it says that the Lord made him victorious. Interesting. Later, you learned that he actually worshiped another God. He did not follow Yahweh. And yet, because God is trying to correct Israel to draw their hearts back to him, he's letting them lose in battle. And so God is helping Naaman to defeat them. But did you hear the weakness? There's one weak spot for Naaman. It's leprosy. Now, we don't know if it was true leprosy. 
Uh, leprosy in our day and age is known as Hansen's disease. It's where these white patches start on your skin. It starts getting down into the nervous system and actually begins to eat away at the nerves. So you, you start to not feel any pain. And eventually it just starts eating away, especially at your, your extremities. So it starts at your fingers, your toes, your nose, and it just starts eating them away until it just eats you to the point where you die. It, it's a nasty, nasty disease. In, in that day and age, anyone who had Hansen's disease... It, it was considered very, very contagious. And so they would actually sequester them, quarantine them, send them away. I personally don't think that Naaman had Hansen's disease, this type of leprosy. I think he just had another type of skin disease. Because in just a moment, we're going to see him go before the king, and the king doesn't freak out. The king's like, get away from me. But he had something. And, and it's important to note that despite his power, despite his influence, despite his money, we're going to see a lot of money in just a moment, he couldn't cure himself. And he's starting to get desperate. That brings us to verse 2. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Oh, would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, the, the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. I, I would imagine that Naaman has tried just about everything. He's probably seen the best of the doctors that they have. He's probably eaten all sorts of different foods to try and cure this. He's probably tried different ointments. He's probably tried different washings. He's probably getting desperate. I mean, he's victorious out on the battlefield, but he, he's not winning the war on his skin. And, and so when he hears that there's a prophet in Israel, he's willing to go to one of his enemies to try to be healed. Now, he's just defeated Israel in battle. We don't know how long before. But I would suspect that Naaman's probably not very popular in Israel. So if he shows up saying, cure me, they're probably going to hope, I hope this thing kills you. Like, no way we're going to cure you. You just, you know, defeated us. So he's got to do something to soften their hearts. So he thinks, i got to take a lot of stuff. I've got to bribe them into this. So here's what he takes. Uh, so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. All right, to our ears, that doesn't mean a lot. Let's translate that into to today's numbers. First, 10 talents of silver. I learned this week that a talent of metal weighed about 75 pounds. So if he has 10 talents, that's 750 pounds of silver. In our economy, that's $180,000. This is an expensive doctor's bill, right? But we're just getting started. Because the next thing it says is 6,000 shekels of gold. Well, I learned that it would take about 3,000 shekels to equal a talent of, of gold, uh, 75 pounds. So we're dealing with about 150 pounds of gold, which in today's numbers is $2.7 million. Uh, yeah, he's paying top dollar for healing. This is how desperate he is. But, but then notice the next thing. 10 changes of clothing. And that, that sounds weird. Like, hey, here's $3 million and some shirts. You know, like, this is really going to wow them. But keep in mind that their clothing back then all had to be handmade. And, and so they just weren't churned out in factories. And so the cost of them was a little higher. 
Plus, if he's walking in with this much silver and this much gold, you've got to have clothing that can compete. Like, they have to stand out. So these are going to be the finest of the finest. Back then, most people only had one set of clothing. They might have a second. But to have, like, dress clothes that, that you would wear to go to a wedding or to some formal function, it just didn't happen. Only the wealthiest of people had that. And yet, to have 10 of them? This is the equivalent of like having 10 Rolls Royces in your garage. This is just the absolute height of luxury. He wants to wow them because he wants them to heal him. So he packs it all up with his servants. They head off to Israel. Verse 6. And he, Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. To the ears of the king of Israel, this sounds like a no-win situation. He knows he does not possess the power to heal. And, and yet, if he doesn't heal him, Syria's going to get mad. Syria's already defeated them in battle once. Syria will probably just come and do it again. They're probably just creating this in order to have an excuse to fight us. So he tears his clothes in distress. This was a way to show just your anger, your sadness, your mourning. He thinks it's over. And he rips his clothes. Then it gets good. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Uh, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand to call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. (laughs) Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. I I want you to stop for a second, and I want you to think about this from Naaman's point of view. Naaman is a general. He's used to commanding respect. He can just give a command and people do it. He can walk into the presence of kings and they want to hear what he has to say. He is a man's man. He is mighty. And yet this prophet doesn't even have the courtesy to come outside and to greet him. Uh, Elisha's inside the house. If we keep reading, we'll see Elisha. He was right there. He doesn't even come out to greet him. He just sends a messenger. You know, they knock on the door. The messenger says, oh, yeah, uh, Elisha, um, he says to go dip in the river. So now you're insulted because you're not even going to have the respect of someone greeting you. And and plus, he's tried everything already. So he's already feeling a little on edge because here he is having to come to his enemies for healing. And now he gets told to go down to the Jordan River. Last Sunday, uh, Leanne, Megan, and I watched the movie Lion. It's a, if you haven't seen it, it's a story of a boy who gets lost in India. 
and you kind of follow his journey of getting, you know, eventually getting into an orphanage that leads to him being adopted by a family in Australia. But then you see him as an adult, and he wonders, what was life like back in India? And is his family possibly still alive? And so you then follow his journey of going back to India. Well, a, a few times in the movie, it, it, the portions that are in India, they show this river. And there's a number of people there. Some people are bathing. Some people are they're washing their clothes. Some are just kids swimming in the waters. Now, most of you know I love to swim. I, I love water. But I'll just be honest. When I saw those images, that water did not look attractive. It looked murky. You see all that activity going on. It just did not scream out, this is clean water. That is Naaman's response to the idea of dipping in the Jordan. It does not seem like clean water. Maybe it's not as wide as, as their rivers back in Damascus. Maybe it's not as powerful. Maybe, you know, he's got certain gods attached to his and, and the Jordan. They, that, no, we don't know. But somehow he has this low view of the Jordan River. And the idea of going and dipping in it is insulting. So he's not getting respect from Elisha. He's now having to come to his enemies for help. And this is how he's being treated. And he has to go and dip in this dirty water. Now you understand why Naaman is mad. Now, if I were one of Naaman's servants, I, I don't know that I would have approached him at this point. I, I, this five-star general probably could have had me killed. But one of his servants, or, or some of his servants, decide to approach him. Verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? I got to say, these servants are brilliant. Kids, if you want to learn how to butter up your parents, listen up. First, these servants approach with absolute humility and respect. They, they, they come and say, my father. Now, Naaman was not really their dad, right? He's merely like their lord, their commander. They're just there to serve him and do what he wants. But they come with respect. By saying, my father, they're basically saying, I identify with you. I will submit to you. I'm with you in this. But also by saying my father, it means I care. And they've traveled all this way, and they're about to see him return back to Syria, still the skin disease. And so they show respect. But then the next thing they do is they appeal to his pride. The ESV translates this passage differently than all other translations. Every other translation I looked at puts it this way. Did he... Tell if, if he had told you to do something great, would you not do it? They appeal to his pride. They, they basically say, if he had told you, hey, go and do this really hard, difficult thing, you'd probably be like, all right, I'll do it. Because you're a man's man. But just because he asked you to do something simple, you're not going to do it? It's brilliant on their part. And they get him to see What's it going to hurt? I've come all this way. May as well try it. And so we see verse 14. So he, Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. I wonder what was going through Naaman's mind on like maybe like the, the fifth or sixth dip? 
You wonder if he's sitting there thinking, this isn't going to work. I've tried everything else. You know, he comes up and he sees, still unclean. Dips down again. Comes up, still unclean. What's one more going to do? This is foolishness. And yet, he's reluctantly showing humility. Giving into the word of his servants, giving into the word of this man of God, Elisha, giving into these Israelites. And so he dips down the seventh time. And when he comes up, he's clean. He's healed. All these years, he's been trying to get clean. And now, in the most unlikely of ways, it happens. And he realizes it was not the Jordan River that did it, it was God. I find this remarkable. I, I kind of grew up in a faith tradition that told me that if you just have a big enough faith, uh, just powerful enough, then God will do these things. I see right here, Naaman, he seems reluctant. He seems to be doubting. And yet God still responds. And I think God still responds even to reluctant humility. But I told you today that there were two stories of humility in this one story, that there was one person who displayed a very loving, willing humility. And we've already seen it. It was all the way back at the very beginning. Let's get back to verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Oh, would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. I want you to think about this little girl for a moment. The, the illustrations on the screen don't do it justice. They, they make her look like a woman. I think this is a young girl, seven, eight, nine years old. When Syria came in for battle against Israel and defeats them, they steal, they kidnap this little girl. And she ends up being a slave to Naaman's wife. She's been ripped away from her family, her home, her land, her country, her culture, She's now in service. She has no freedom. She has no rights. If there's anyone in a position of looking at Naaman with hatred, it's this little girl. If there's anyone who should be thinking, I hope he dies of his skin disease. He deserves it. Look what they've done to me. This is God punishing you. But she doesn't. She completely sets aside her preference of freedom. Completely sets aside her need to be back in Israel with her family. She sets all of it aside to help. She says, if he was just with the prophet back in Israel, he could be healed. She puts his needs before her own. That is the purest form of humility. And it's right here that we see Jesus and we see us. You and I, we're Naaman. No, we're not generals. We don't have a skin disease. I definitely don't have $3 million and 10 nice pairs of clothing. But I am Naaman. Because spiritually, I have a disease. And it's called sin. And sin infected every single human on the earth when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit. And it has disfigured the image of God that is within man. And the problem is, 
None of us can heal ourselves. I know all sorts of people who've tried. There are people who try to medicate the spiritual pain that they feel, whether it be with alcohol or drugs or work or money or relationships. They try all these things to try and make themselves feel better. It just never seems to satisfy. I know other people. They've tried really, really hard to like atone for their sins through doing a lot of good works. And so they will give lots of money. They'll give lots of time. They'll even help little old ladies across the street, hoping that somehow this will make God happy. But it doesn't do enough to pay for our sin because the penalty of sin was death. That is why Jesus came. And like the little girl, Jesus was willing to set aside his needs for us. Trust me, the cross was not comfortable. He did not need the lashings. It was not fun when the crown of thorns was jammed on his head. And yet, the book of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy that was there was you. He did this for you. He set aside what he needed so that you and I could come back into a relationship with our creator. Sam already read these words, but I want to reread a portion of them again from Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and... Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is like the little girl. He totally set aside his own preferences for us because we had a spiritual disease and we couldn't heal ourselves. And by going to the cross, Jesus becomes kind of like the Jordan River. It's grotesque. Have you guys ever really thought about the Jesus story? A man being brutally murdered, hung on a cross. And we talk about this week after week after week. This is an R-rated story. It's not what we want. Just like Naaman didn't want the Jordan River. And yet, Even if we reluctantly humiliate ourselves and dip into this story, allowing Jesus to be our identity, we dip into his blood and his sacrifice, we are washed clean. This is the gospel story, and it's right here in a story about Naaman and a slave girl. And when we realize the love, the loving humility that Jesus displays, I think it causes us to do two things. The first It causes us to worship. This is why we sing. This is why we celebrate. It's why we partake of communion. Because every single week, we need to, for the rest of eternity, look at this loving, humiliating act that Jesus went through for us. Because it's remarkable. But then it should do a second thing. It should lead us to also live lives of humility. Because when we realize that Jesus did this for us, it should move us in such a way that we realize that we can do the same. That we can set aside our own preferences, our own needs, and go and talk with someone for an hour about cats. 
Imagine with me what this world would be like if each and every one of us lived with this sort of loving humility. Imagine the impact it would have on your marriage. Imagine the impact it would have on a relationship between a parent and a child. Imagine what your work relationships would look like if you lived with that kind of humility. Imagine what this could do to a neighborhood, to a community, to a service club, to a church. Imagine what this does to the world. You possess the ability to change someone's world, but it's going to happen when you live a life of humility. I regularly tell my kids that the fastest way to unhappiness is the path of selfishness. I've experienced that way too many times myself. And yet, if you really want to experience joy, then do it. Spell it J-O-Y. Jesus, others, you. When you live your life in that order, when you humble yourself before Jesus, putting him first, and then you live with others next and making it about them, setting your needs and preferences and making theirs more important, you then begin to experience an everlasting joy. So it begins by being humble, humiliating yourself before Jesus, and then being humble for others, loving them with a humility that puts them first, and you will watch God change the world. Father, I just pray right now you would help each and every one of us to do this. Because as we admitted in this message, humility is hard. Each and every one of us, Lord, lives within ourselves. We, we see our thoughts. We see our actions. We, we hear our words. We live with us constantly. And so to set us aside for the sake of someone else can be difficult. But Jesus, you didn't leave us alone when you, when you ascended to heaven. You said you would send us your Holy Spirit. And so I thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes into Jesus' followers that can empower us to live these kind of lives. God, I just pray right now for anyone's marriage that's struggling, that you would help them to not worry about what the other person is doing, but instead would love with humility, putting the needs and preference of someone else before their own. I pray for any kids here that are struggling with, with their parents, they're struggling to obey, that they would begin to just set aside their own needs and preferences and listen and be obedient to their parent. I pray for anyone here that's struggling at work because of a relationship whether it be with a boss or a coworker, pray that they would go into that with humility. Pray the same for any relationships with extended family or, or, or neighbors, that we would just live with a posture of humility, not making this life so much about us. Instead, we'd make it about you. And part of making it about you is to love others the way Jesus would love them. And that means to put their needs and preferences first. God, I pray for anyone here today that is not a follower of you yet. I pray that they would see, Jesus, your humility, how you were willing to set aside all of this for us, how you even became obedient to death on a cross. And I pray that they would have a moment of thank you, that they would surrender their life to you, saying that they want to be Jesus-centered, that they would humiliate themselves to come to Christ. God, I pray you'd help each of us to day in, day out, continue to dip ourselves into this gospel story. That we'd even see how Naaman and the slave girl point to Jesus and the greatest story of all time. 
and that this story would resonate through our actions and through our words and even through our eyes and presence. God, help us to be Jesus-centered people for your glory and for our joy. And it's in his name we pray.